Well, uh, open up your Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word in your hand. Um, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to be. If you want to turn there, we'll get there in just a minute. As Pastor Grady mentioned last week, he and I are filling in for Pastor Rob, obviously, as he is having some great time away, some much needed time away. I was able to speak with him last night, and they've had a great, great time, and um, certainly looking forward to having him back here next week as we jump back into the book of Revelation. My name is Garth Glenn, serve as the associate pastor, so good to be with you again and, and open up God's word, in which we are going to jump midstream into Romans. Why not, right? Like what could possibly go wrong by opening up the Word of God to the middle of Romans and jumping midstream into it? It's an amazing book. Pastor and author John Parper calls Romans the greatest letter ever written. And I think I would agree with him and many of us would as well. And just for, uh, just so you know, it took him eight years to preach through the entire book. So can I just say before we complain about the pace by which we go through the books of the Bible in this church. I don't know if you've ever gone through, a, it's taken eight years to go through a book of the Bible. So uh, I think we're doing pretty well. And, and by the way, I think good preachers, good espousing, uh, expounding preachers of God's word work hard and, and they take their time. Not just that, right, skim the surface of God's word, but to plumb the depths. We can never fully plumb the depths of God's word, but uh, man, working hard and wrestling with God's word is what's necessary for us to understand in God's word. And I'm thankful, amen, that we have a senior pastor who does that week in and week out. So remember that as we get back into the book of Revelation next week. Martin Luther also called the book of Romans the purest gospel. It also was, Romans was a spark that lit the fire for the Reformation. Martin Luther found himself on his knees working through the book of Romans and God enlightened his eyes and opened his heart to the understanding of justification by faith alone. And again, it lit the fire for the Reformation. Romans, bottom line, is about the grandeur of the gospel. It's about the gospel. And the first two verses of chapter 12 give us insight into how we are to live in light of that gospel. The gospel that hopefully we have received, understood, received, and lived from and in and all about. Fully devoted. And Paul starts, as we all should, with our relationship with God. He starts with what? Again, our response to God's amazing work in our life should be. A fully devoted life. Which takes us to the first point. We're going to jump right into this. The first point being a fully devoted life starts with the right foundation. It starts with the right foundation. This is what Paul has done with his incredible letter. Look at, for, at the first part of verse 1. 1a says this. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, by, brothers, by the mercies of God. Let's just stop right there. By the mercies of God, as Paul often does, he uses this key word, therefore, right, to make his transition. If you spent any time studying God's word, you have learned that. That's a great tool to have as you see that transitional component in, in God's word. He's making the transition from deep doctrine, 
to practical application. Chapters 12 through 16, the rest of the book of Romans. He says, because of what I just got done writing and explaining, now do this. Now do this. Paul is taking the learning and, if, and moving it into the living, if you will. Paul is appealing to, he is urging, let's just say it the way it is, as Paul typically does. He's commanding the believers by the mercies of God to live their life fully devoted. That's what Paul calls the amazing truths and realities of the previous chapters. The mercies of God. And though we can look back, I think, directly to the chapter 11, preceding obviously chapter 12 for some support of the therefore, I think his appeal is based on all, all the previous 11 chapters and helps us to understand what he means by the mercies of God. The idea of mercy covering both what God is withholding from us, which is his wrath, which has been fully and completely poured out onto his son, Jesus Christ, but it also encompasses the compassion and the grace of God through Jesus to us, which is the gospel, just in case you were wondering. Uh, that's the gospel in all its glory. And so again, why does Paul do this? Why does Paul look back in order to look forward? Well, because you can't build a house without first having a good foundation. I had the privilege years ago before I stepped into ministry of framing houses and I showed up at many, many job sites and we never, but we never showed up at that job site to build a house until what? There was a foundation that was poured. Never built a house and someone came in later and put that foundation in there. That's weird. It's Captain Obvious stuff. But that's what Paul is doing here. The doctrine of salvation is the foundation, if you will, that Paul has poured. Other key doctrines for sure exist in this letter. But primarily, the doctrine of salvation. The, the mercies of God. I really think there can be no other foundation, no greater purpose for a fully devoted life than the amazing work of Christ and all he has done for and in us. It's only possible to do so because of God saving us, right? Starts there. It only continues because God is saving us, because God continues to do his work in and through us. It's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And Paul makes his appeal based on, I think, two things that we can pull from these first 11 words of verse 1. Two things. It's the knowledge of and the worship from God's mercies. The knowledge of God's mercies and then also the worship from God's mercies. And so let's start with the knowledge of God's mercy. Again, God's mercy carries us back to what Paul has been laying out. And if Paul is basing our life's response on doctrine, right? Then we better know what that doctrine is. We, we better have some type of understanding of what that doctrine is that he just spent a lot of ink explaining and laying out before us. 
Truths like the depravity of man from chapter 1. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is nobody that is inherently good. We have all been born, what? Inherently sinful. So truths like the depravity of man. How about the atonement? How about justification? Justification by faith alone, like I mentioned earlier. Redemption. God's preservation of believers. That he keeps us. That he sustains us. How about sanctification? Becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Co-opting, if you will, with God himself to make us more like Jesus Christ. How about God's sovereign choice? His sovereign choice and the understanding of who we are as the church of Jesus Christ in light of that. And certainly, last but not least, our future hope. If you spent any time in the book of Romans, you know those are some of the things that Paul has fleshed out for us and laid the foundation in order for us to understand how to live our life today. And certainly that's not all of them. But here's my question for you this morning. How well do you know these doctrines? Well, those are just for pastors, right? Those are just for professors. Those are just for those of you who get paid to, to do this and study God's word. I, I, I would put forth to you that if Paul is basing our life's response on these doctrines, then we better know what they are. My, I also put forth that if salvation is truly the most amazing, inconceivable, and important event of a life, shouldn't we know as much as we can about it? I don't care what you have to put forth, right? The birth of babies, more importantly, the birth of grandbabies is pretty amazing, but it pales, pales in comparison to the doctrine of salvation, to the mercies of God for us. Shame on us if we know more about our favorite sports teams or our hobbies, or the current politics around us, or maybe the latest conspiracy theory, than we do about the richness and depth of how and why we were saved. And we need to have a biblical, solid biblical, or a solid biblical understanding of our salvation. And I really believe, I think you have learned this from us as a church and from our senior pastor, I really believe that everyone who names the name of Jesus should be able to articulate what it means to some degree or another, what it means to be saved by Jesus. At least have a cursory grasp on biblical concepts and doctrines. And I'm not saying you need to teach a seminary class. I'm not saying even go to seminary. But scripture is pretty clear in 2 Timothy 2.15. When Paul says, again, thank you, Paul, to Timothy, a young pastor, do you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So let me offer up a couple resources for you. If you feel that conviction on your life, if you feel like I need to know more, I have not spent, and I need to understand to the best of my ability, these incredible truths. Let me offer up a couple resources for you, for you. Christian beliefs. Many of you have this book. Many of you have gone through this book. But I also know many of you have never picked up this book. 
And 20 basics every Christian should know. I had this great idea of making it available out there at a cheaper price. And then I'm like, well, three days before I preach is probably the not, not the right time to gather all those books and order those. That wasn't going to happen. But you can get online, quickly find the book, and buy it for yourself. And, and by the way, men, there's a summer study starting uh, beginning of June, June 4th, and Monday night, June 6th. And guess what book they're going through? They're going to start going through this book. So what a great motivation for you to sign up. Go online, sign up, and, and be a part of that. There's also a great website, biblicaltraining.org. It's a world-class education from premier professors so you can learn and grow spiritually for free. There's the key word, right? For free. Earn a diploma or certificate of completion. But take advantage. Be intentional. Be, be, be a study of God's word. Be able to articulate and be able to answer when God, you know, not just Jesus died for me, that's, that's important, but what does that mean that Jesus died for you? What does that encompass? How, how, what, the, plumb the depths of the salvation, the salvation of the doctrine of salvation. Can't stop with knowledge though, can we? So please don't gather information, walk around like a giant bobblehead or a fathead and all information and nothing else. Certainly can't stop there. The knowledge of and the foundation from these truths are the very bedrock for our worship in a fully devoted life. It's the very bedrock. The knowledge of God and his plan of salvation should literally fuel our worship. Did you find yourself doing it this morning? I, I certainly did. Singing the words that we sung, talking about the blood of Jesus. Where did that take you? Was it just words on the screen or did you think deeply about that and, 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 and try to discern and remember, if you will, why the blood of Jesus is so important in our salvation and why we're singing about it in the first place? It should fuel our worship. Listen, no knowledge, no worship. I don't think that's the case for most of us sitting here today. I think it's probably little knowledge, which then creates little worship. We need to know and worship from these truths. And I'll tell you, as your knowledge increases, your worship is going to go to another level. You're going you're gonna to know it and experience it and, and appreciate it and dwell on it. And, and I hope it just rises up within you even more so. This is what Paul did back in chapter 11, verse 33. He gets so overwhelmed. He has been immersed in, in laying these truths out and going deep into these truths. And in verse 33 of chapter 11, you see it on the screen. He says, he just, he just cries out. He worships. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We have to know what God's word says about salvation. We need to be great thinkers about these eternal matters. And we also need to allow our worship to be fueled by the glories of God's mercy. The incredible, unsearchable, overwhelming mercies of God is the only foundation worth building and living on. 
That's our first point this morning, but I also think a fully devoted life involves offering God everything. A fully devoted life offers God everything. It's kind of the gist of these verses, isn't it? Again, well-known verses. I know a lot of you know these verses, and we spent time there, and you've memorized them. But it's really the gist of, of these two verses before us this morning. Second part of verse 1, start with the verse, first part. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? Present. To present. In other words, to offer, to, to place at one's disposal. To present what? Your bodies. It's interesting, he says body is not life there. But he says bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, which is set apart, consecrated, and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual worship. Again, Paul says, because of what I just got done writing, now do this. There has to be a response to that understanding of God's mercies. To do what? Again, offer your body. You, you offer yourself to God who has the power and authority to make use of it as he chooses. That's what it means. Place yourself at, at the disposal of someone, at one's disposal. Like you have the authority, you have the power to do what you want with this life. And that, that's what we're saying. That's what Paul is telling us to do. God saves us, listen, not so we can continue being and living as before. That's not salvation. That's not the gospel. Rather, we are saved in order for God to have a people who are holy, set apart for him. It's been the case from the beginning, has it not? It's been the case with all his people. He calls out a people. He identifies a people. He chooses a people and calls them out and says, I'm setting you apart. You're going to be different. It's no different for us today just because we know Jesus and we have the death and resurrection of Christ that our salvation is applied to. It's no different for us today. He's calling us to present the entirety of herself to him for his glory, for his use. Far more than salvation simply being about what we can only get from God. This is about God getting all of us. He doesn't just want something from us. He wants us. He wants you. Why? Because God wants us among so many other things. He, he wants us to image him to others. He, he wants us to reflect who he is. He, he wants us to, to show the world, he, even on the most surface level, who he is, his character, his attributes. God wants us to use our eyes to see a need and meet it. God wants us to touch a life with our life with his love. God wants us to listen with a compassionate ear to others. God wants us to speak truth and encouragement to people. God wants us to proclaim the gospel. God wants us to bear one another's burdens. Just to scratch 
the surface of what he desires from us and really ultimately for us. He wants us to offer him everything. And listen, not as an attempt to pay God back. I think that's our tendency, right? I'm going to try to to pay you back, Lord. I'm going to try to give back to you and we can kind of even the scales here and whatever. That's, That's not a thing and can't be done anyway. But out of gratitude. Remember when you first gave your life to Christ and the gratitude that you had? You're overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus Christ and you're like, I'm yours. I'll do whatever, I'll say whatever, I'll go wherever, I'll do whatever. I don't know what happens over time, but we begin little by little, I think, pulling back and taking back and and thinking that we now have, that this is ours. Out of gratitude, the gospel is grace and our life has got to be a life of gratitude. And the greatest and best way to show our gratitude to the God of grace is offer him literally everything. The greatest no-brainer of life is to fully devote our life to the one who gave us life. It's the most sensible, logical response we could have. That's what Paul is getting at with that whole spiritual worship. This is your spiritual worship. This is your reasonable service. Another translation, this is reasonable service. It's a no-brainer. It's the most sensible and logical thing to do. And I, I think offering God everything involves at least two things. In your daily life, two things I just want to flesh out here. Number one, remember. Remember. Remember what? Remember that you are not your own anyway. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. Thank you again, Paul, to the Corinthians. You are not your own. For you, have, you were bought with a price. So again, there's the truth. There's the doctrine. There's, there's the indisputable fact. And what does Paul say? So glorify God in your body. The Christian, listen. We have no right over what we have been, what has been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And really, the Christian can never chant, my body, my choice. Listen, not just in pro-life manners or matters, not just in pro-life matters, but literally in all matters of life. We tend to only see it in that context, but listen, it encompasses everything. The the Christian has no right over what has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So if we glorify God with our bodies by what we say, we glorify him by what we say or we don't say, what we look at or what we don't look at, where we go, where we don't go, what we listen to or don't listen to, and on and on it goes. It's not ours. It's not ours. Why do we think we have the right to do what we want with it? We don't. We have been called to glorify God. We are not our own. Second, it involves surrender. As in surrender your will, remember you're not your own. 
Surrender your will and agenda. Stop fighting for control with a sovereign God. It's a crazy thing that we do. It's an absolute crazy thing we do. Stop fighting for control with a sovereign God. We can't offer our life and then hold on to it, even if it's just a piece of it. It's all God's, so surrender all of it to him. And listen, can we do these things perfectly? No. Completely? No. Not this side of heaven. But that's the ongoing goal. The, the, the verses indicate the ongoing nature of this appeal. It's how Paul writes It's the already not yet aspect of our life. Paul is saying, keep presenting your bodies. Keep being fully devoted. We may not do it perfectly or completely, but we can do so genuinely, intentionally, and we can do so from the daily grace that God absolutely provides. God desires every one of his believers to lay their bodies on the altar of their daily life. And when we do, it's a living sacrifice. Different from the sacrifices of old, right? Slaughtered, their sacrifices to die. God says now, through Jesus Christ, you are to live. You'll be a living sacrifice. So think about your day. Take all that you have to do. The smallest of details of your day are never insignificant when they are done for God. Not an easy thing to do, for sure. But it's possible. It's possible. Unfortunately, though, we tend to classify life subconsciously, perhaps, as sacred or secular. Certainly, our time here is what? Oh, it's sacred. Like, right, going to church and being together and worshiping and open God's word, that, that's, that's, that's sacred. But listen, that doctrine of sacred and secular is not a concept found in the Bible. Life consecrated to God makes every moment holy. It makes every moment set apart. Every moment. Not just the ones we choose. We don't, we're not supposed to vacillate back and forth between the secular and the sacred, but it literally makes every moment holy, set apart for him. A devoted life, listen, is not just meant for Sundays and only during a specific time, but every day, everywhere. When that happens, it's a life that is based on the mercies of God and is well-pleasing and satisfying to the God who has saved you. So that's our second point, third point. A fully devoted life means rejecting conformity means rejecting conformity. First part of verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Maybe you have a translation to this age, but to this world. Don't be conformed to that which stands in opposition to God. That which is passing away. That which you have been saved out of. Don't be conformed to that. God says through Paul, don't be pressed into the mold or shaped to the world's pattern. That's the idea of conformity, being shoved in and and just reproduced, if you will, like everyone else. Don't, Don't be forced into that or shaped to the world's pattern. The pattern of the world, the godless 
and unbiblical philosophies of this world. You know about them. You work with them. You're inundated with them every single day. How people think and what they think about, their values, their beliefs, their attitudes. God forgive us when we have the attitude of the world. Hopelessness. The world views of the age we live in. The pattern of the world is the worship of this world, which tends to be what? The individual, me. The focus of this world, which is temporary and not eternal. Nothing matters except right here, right now. Do what you want. Listen, it's a mindset. It's a pattern of living and thinking that is incompatible with what God wants for his people. And conforming leaves us looking more like the world than Christ. Rather, a fully devoted life means having a hatred for this world. It's what John says in 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. It means not loving the school of thought that everyone subscribes to. We have to remember that to love our neighbor as ourselves doesn't mean becoming like them doesn't become, mean becoming like them. But unfortunately, most times, we don't even realize conformity is happening, do we? We're so inundated by it, it usually is subtle and typically doesn't look or feel too bad. It creeps in, happens without us even realizing it. We need to be on guard. The pull of the world is real, it's strong, and it doesn't need any help from us. It's even more reason for us to ask daily for God to help us not conform. To walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Because God wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. That's sent to the world while not being like the world. We are recalled to look like sheep and not goats. Or to be set apart and not blending in. Which leads us to how we can do that. How, how can we work at doing just that? So you think lastly, a fully devoted life works to have a renewed mind. A fully devoted life works to have a renewed mind. Look at the last part of verse 2 as we close. But be transformed, Paul says, by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul pinpoints the brain, pinpoints the mind. Why? Why the mind? Because I think it represents, if you will, the control center of our life. What we think about becomes what we do. It's another way of saying that the problem, listen, the problem with us isn't first and foremost out there, it's where? It's in here. It's certainly in here. Plus, I think he's countering the command to not think like the world. Their mind has been blinded by the God of this world, small g. But instead, we have been given quite literally the mind of Christ. And with it, we are to think according to God, his spirit, his word, have a mind that is renewed, conformed, not to the world, but to who? To Christ himself. 
So here again, we have the already but not yet aspect of our life. We have been given a renewed mind, but we also need to have a mind that's renewed. How do we do that? How do we cooperate with God to sanctify our mind? Paul doesn't tell us specifically in this passage, but he does in other letters that he has written. So I want to give you three quick things that we can begin to intentionally work at in order for our mind to be renewed. Number one, to turn it off, not your mind, as in evaluate what you're putting into your mind. To evaluate what you're putting into your mind. In Romans 8, 5 through 6, it's on the screen. It's a hefty passage. Let me read it to you. Paul says this, For those who live according to the flesh, our sinful nature, the selfish, worldly, ungodly desires, set their minds, thoughts, desires, and will on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit do what? Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, hefty passage, but don't miss the point. We either enable the work of the Spirit in our life or hinder it by what we set our mind on. That which we pursue and set our affections on. What we watch, again, what we read, what we listen to, who we spend most of our time with, will either promote a renewed mind or prevent it from happening. So turn it off. Make a choice to eliminate that which is not of the Spirit. Number two, take it captive. Take it captive. Taken from 2 Corinthians 10.5. Thank you again, Paul. We destroy, he says, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The key is not to quit thinking, but to take control of how you think through the power of Jesus Christ within you, what you think on. Take captive every thought. The idea of captivity is what? Loss of freedom. Don't give it free reign. It's preventing ungodly and wrong thoughts to have free reign in your mind. It's seeing it for what it is and refusing to dwell on it. It's refusing to let it take root. Not wishful thinking or power of positive thinking or some junk like that, but rather it's making your thoughts submissive to the authority of Christ within you. If it doesn't glorify him, take it captive. If it isn't true, if it isn't honorable, if it isn't just, if it isn't pure, if it isn't lovely, if it isn't commendable, if it isn't excellent, if it isn't praiseworthy, then take it captive and better yet, destroy it. Third, take it in. It being the word of God. I really hope that the only time that you take in the word of God, I said that wrong, I really hope this isn't the only time you take in the word of God. Certainly important. Colossians 3, 16, the first part of 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of God dwell, live, have its way, have its being within you richly, deeply, and it can only dwell and stay within you if you have put it in you. Read it. Get into the word. Better yet, let the word get into you. The word get into you and change you. Meditate and memorize the scripture. 
Let it saturate your soul. Let it saturate your mind. Begin to purpose in your life to take into your mind what is righteous and glorifying to God. And when you do, the junk of the world and your sinful desires will be more and more pushed out. It's been said, not of my yard, but it's been said that the best weed prevention is a healthy yard. That's not my yard, okay? Good for you if it's your yard. The best weed prevention is a healthy yard. No place for weeds to grow. It's so strong. It's so healthy. It just forces everything out and keeps everything out. Listen, the best conformity prevention is a renewed mind, a healthy mind, a biblical mind, a saturated mind from the word of God. There's no place for the world to get in. And the result of all of that is a renewed mind. Transform, sanctify. We've become more like Jesus and less like the world. Not automatically, not automatically, but progressively, ongoingly. It's a lifelong process, but eventually you will see and know a difference has begun to take place in your mind. You will think differently. People will see that difference. You'll respond differently. You stop reacting and you start responding. You will know God's will, most importantly. That's what Paul gets at here in the closing. You will know God's will. You will desire God's will. And you will accept God's will for you. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The renewed mind of a believer doesn't just know God's will, but also desires and accepts the will of God for themselves. We typically know that God, what God desires for us. Let's just say it. God's will for your life is the same as my, God's will for my life. It's to be holy as he is holy. Your sanctification. To be holy as he is. He, he says that. The problem comes in with us not seeing it as good and necessary for us. We don't fully accept it as the perfect will of God. We don't really want it. It's hard. It's difficult. I got to get rid of things. I got to repent of things. He's got to rub some things off. He's got to remove things. He's got to add things. It's not an easy thing. So we may understand it, have the knowledge of it, but to accept it and to want it and allow God to do it in our life is a whole other thing. It sounds good in the brochure, if you will, but just don't want to sign up for that service. But when we have been transformed by the renewing of our mind, we begin to see that the mercies of God involve him shaping us changing us, and we begin to discern that his will is the best possible thing for us. There's nothing else better out there that we could ever find or want except what God wants to do in our life. And of course, something strange happens, something supernatural. We begin to want it. We begin to ask for it. We... We begin to seek it. We begin to praise God for it. We begin to just lay ourselves before him and say, I'm yours. Do what you want. We begin to accept it by faith, knowing that he knows best and it is best. A fully devoted life, all because of the mercies of God, giving God everything, rejecting conformity, and renewing our minds. Let's build our life on nothing else. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your word. 
We praise you for your presence. We praise you for your work, as in the work of salvation. And we just say right now, Lord, change us. At the end of the day, we're tired of ourselves. We want more of you and we want to be different. And so, Lord, we give you full reign. We acknowledge that we are not our own. And so help us fully and completely to present ourselves to you and for you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.